This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am super excited for today's show because we've got one of our favorite guests. He comes on every once in a while, almost annually. Almost, yeah. And his name is Murtaza Hyder. Professor Murtaza Hyder, past guest fan favorite. So great to have Murtaza back on the show. Let's run down what Murtaza... The long hat, list. The long list of hats Murtaza wears here. So he's a professor at Ryerson University. He's a director of Regionomics Incorporated. He's a columnist at the Financial Post. He writes for the Globes, the Globe and Mail. And he's co-founded the Hyder Moranis Bulletin, a real estate bulletin. He's a busy guy. Yeah, he wears uh, a few more hats than you do as a real estate agent and a uh, recreational tennis player. Uh, and I, I guess you're a dad too, yeah. uh, family man. But no, I dabble. He, he's, I dabble. <laughs> you, you dabble in dadism. <laughs> he's a fantastic guest, really a commentator on all things real estate in the national markets. And it's it's what always impresses me about Murtaza is that he's in Ontario, he's in Toronto, but he is able to talk about almost any market across the country Within a moment's notice. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we talk different regions. He has a lot to say about Vancouver as well. And especially 
what's going to happen in 2022, which is always, uh, we always like to, to get the crystal ball out with Murtaza. But Matt, before we get to that, a couple things to talk about. One is uh, you just had a 10-year-old's birthday party at your house. One of the most stressful things I've gone through in a very long time. Yeah. yeah. 10-year-old. Uh, it's a new hat for me. It, it, yeah, exactly. Party planner. <laughs> party uh, hat. Uh, and uh, yeah, it turns out I don't handle stress very well. Oh yeah, good, um, good, good, there's a good thing for a realtor, good characteristic for an agent. <laughs> well, no, this is the amazing part. I mean, I, I actually have said this to more than one person, like we can be running at full capacity, the team in full sprint, you know, working 24 seven, you know, lining up podcast guests, doing we the podcast, doing deals. It's like, it's a very stressful existence. This party put me flat on my back. <laughs> like, first off, I, and I, I don't know if this is a regular kind of adult, potentially adult male thing. I don't know. 10-year-old girls, they're a tough bunch to, to manage, to manage, to get a handle on, to read, to establish boundaries with. I was the second driver. We, were, we went to the, the trampoline park in Richmond, and I had to drive three or four 10-year-olds in my car, of which I knew none of them. Without your daughter. Without present. my daughter. So it was like, I That's had awkward. 10, you're like an Uber driver. Ten-year-old, yeah, four ten-year-olds who are extremely hopped up on sugar in my car. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, respect is uh, is no longer a watchword in the ten-year-old community. Really, it's uh, it's it's a it's tough. I don't know. You know, well, you try and be friendly, and then suddenly you feel like they, uh, you know, they're treating you like a doormat, and then you right. try and establish boundaries, and you know, and somebody's crying. It's uh, it's it's so, kind of a nightmare. So. I've been in your car and your, your go-to in your car generally is Taylor Swift. That's, that that's, didn't, uh, that didn't buy them. They weren't impressed. I was nope. like, Hey guys, your choice. It was like, that didn't work really like music wise. And then I was like, well, I got this great playlist of my daughters. Not impressed. One wow. of them was having trouble getting a, a bag of gummies open. That was pretty stressful. <laughs> you know what you got to do is just, is just, uh, at one point just turn around and, and scream, back to Winnipeg and turn the car around. <laughs> I, I did. That, that's, that, that actually that, basically that, happened. <laughs> that, that worked on us when we were kids. Here's the thing. This week, and, and I don't want to belittle the birthday party because that was a big, big thing it that was happened a, yeah, in, it was in, in this week. But did you watch Succession? Because good <laughs> Lord, that was, uh, that that was maybe the, the best, best episode. The best episode of season three, maybe of the season. Yeah. Uh, or of the of this of the series. That's uh that's becoming a quick highlight of the week. No, so the meetings between Logan and Kendall. Yeah, but also the mother and Shiv, the onion right. part. Right. Ooh. And uh, yeah, the the dinner with Logan and Kendall at yeah. the end is uh, or towards the end is uh, was unbelievable. Also the the trip to uh, Scarfsgard or whatever his character. This is, I actually texted you this the uh, the kind of Elon Musk character. Saying, right. you know, capitalism, this winning in this world is not that hard. It's just analysis plus capital plus execution. Right, right. No spoilers alert on the uh, spoiler alerts on the uh, Vancouver real estate podcast. That, here. Yeah, no, but how it, does it all fit? It, You'll have to watch. This it should not be a spoiler alert, but is is Yellowstone the worst TV show on television now? I, I think I just watched my last Yellowstone episode I'll, I'll ever watch. I feel like the I'm term done. the term hate watch is now. <laughs> it's a horrible, it's kind of the, the most recent episode. They they do this like straw man with this hippie who uh, just watch. It's it's horrible. But anyways, I did I'm, like, I'm out I on did Yellowstone. Like, there was a there's a pretty good fight scene 
Uh, that's, all, that's the only reason I'm there. <laughs> the only reason I'm there in the first place is to watch, like, you know, 75-year-old Kevin right. Costner you know what? put, some, put some punk kid in his place. Yeah, well, or 75-year-old Kevin Costner somehow end up in uh, in the sack with a 20-year-old uh, hippie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he calls it the sack, too. Anyways, <laughs> what else? Before we cut to today's interview, let's uh, let's talk about our this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are a new agent, and this is, you know, 2022, I think everybody's starting to talk, think about goals for next year. Right. Oakland, there's no better place to plan, and they have a specific tools for this at Oakland Realty sure. to plan for the next year. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, I think the first thing I would do is head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That is oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only will you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, you get a huge incentive for heading to oakland.com slash join and typing in VRP 2020. Absolutely. And let them know that you found out about Oakland through the podcast. And uh, Matt, without further ado, why don't we cut to this conversation? Because this is an in-depth analysis of the year it's been and where we're going in this real estate market. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's a lot of takeaways. Oh, it's a fantastic conversation. Nothing like talking uh, with a real smart person about Canadian real estate. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Murtaza Haider, Professor of Data Science and Real Estate Management at Ryerson University, columnist for the Financial Post, and co-founder of Haider Moranis Bulletin. I should also mention, this is the fourth time having you on the show, fan favorite, past guest, so we're excited to have you back. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Murtaza. Maybe maybe for our listeners, newer listeners or, or people that uh, can't remember, I think it's been over a year since you've been on the show. Can we maybe start by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I teach at Ryerson University in the real estate department. And essentially, my research is the intersection of land development and transportation accessibility. So um, over the years, maybe now almost 25, 30 years, I've been researching housing markets, land development, the evolution of cities, their transportation systems. And in the process, I end up teaching in these fields, transportation and land development and housing. And I think, I'm, I'm not sure 100%, but with 480 students, I teach perhaps the largest real estate management course in Canada. Oh, wow. Just out of curiosity, Murtaza, I don't think we've asked you before, but how did you get interested in real estate in the first place? Well, I don't know how you get interested, but if you get interested, I can tell you to come to Ryerson University and do a bachelor's <laughs> degree. <laughs> Great answer. Um, why don't we start? Uh, we we want to uh, dig into the, the market with you today. Why don't we start with just the general question? What's your take on the state of the Canadian real estate market currently? So different segments. I mean, um, if you start with the overall housing, uh, overall real estate market, you have housing and you have commercial real estate. Within commercial, you have office, retail and industrial. So on a positive note, I can tell you that industrial real estate is doing really well. There's been a significant increase in the demand for warehouses and the like. So people who held on to industrial real estate are, are being rewarded handsomely. 
more and more people are buying stuff online, which means that we need a significant increase in the square footage for uh, storage spaces. So, so warehousing has, has taken off considerably. As far as uh, office real estate is concerned, and is with office is the associated retail real estate, that is not doing that well, primarily because offices still are under the leases that they were. There's not a humongous decline in lease, leasing activity as far as cancellation of leases is concerned, but there's also not a big increase or an increase in leasing, new leasing activity, which means that the office real estate is in a steady state right now. But it is in a steady state because of a great, a large increase in subleasing. So people who had redundant space have been trying to get that sublet it while maintaining their long-term five to ten-year leases. An increase in rents and and market activity in the suburban areas is more pronounced than it is in the urban core. So the office real estate in the urban core is struggling. And then associated with it is retail. Retail is going to continue to struggle. Even though, surprisingly, there's not been a humongous decline in rents or retail rents are steady. Um, At the same time, I expect that after this Christmas activity is over with, there might be a significant or noticeable rethink about retail real estate. A part of it is, you know, the, the restaurants and whatnot. And this is all not because of a lack of demand. This is all because of restrictions on mobility and assembly. So, so that is hurting these uh, types of real estate. Housing, on the other hand, is is uh, breaking new grounds, posing new challenges. Housing prices continue to increase. Housing demand continues to increase. Housing supply is in short supply. New construction has not really taken off at the pace it should have. And the listings, which is, you know, when you go to the realtor.ca and search for homes, listings are low considerably. So there's a sales to listing ratio, which we use to determine if it's a seller's or a buyer's market. And right now it's considerably in the favor of sellers because there are fewer homes being chased by a very large number of buyers, resulting in a sustained increase in price growth and demand pressures being very high. Usually interested buyers end up bidding for four, five, maybe 10, 15, and in some instances, 30 to 40 homes and still not been able to get a house that meets their budgets. So that's overall what I see is happening with the Canadian real estate right now. Are there certain markets in across Canada in your mind that, that seem like they're they're kind of overheated? Yeah, so I don't know what, what it, the, you know, when we say it's overheated or there's a bubble, I don't know what it means because what it means is to me, there's more people trying to buy, there are fewer housing available for sale and therefore prices are increasing. So in that case, you could see that Toronto and uh, Vancouver used to be the places where such trends were observed in the past. But in the last 18 months or so, you saw similar in rapid increase in prices in places like Hamilton in Ontario, Windsor in Ontario, New Brunswick, St. John, New Brunswick, not as much, but Halifax in Nova Scotia. So you can see that even smaller towns have seen significant increase in prices in a very short period of time. So if you were to say, uh, has uh, housing prices been, have housing prices been rising in one or two parts of Canada? The answer is no. It's more or less a coast-to-coast phenomenon now. And, and 
What in your mind, Murtaza, is the, and we've had you on before, but what's the cause? Or to put it another way, we, we've had you on over the last, say, five years talking about housing. Does this rise across the country or fairly dramatic rise across the country this year, does it surprise you? Um, yes, it does surprise me, for sure. I mean, I was not expecting prices to continue to rise at this pace during the pandemic. So the pace at which, the rate at which housing prices have increased certainly surprised me. But what does not surprise me is that housing prices are rising, primarily because the demand is increasing and we haven't done anything substantial, not in the last year, but in the last 50 years, to address this gap between demand and supply. We have been building fewer homes in the last four to five decades than we had built in the past and I give you an example. In the 70s, early 70s, Canada was building 10 to 12,000 dwellings every year for every million of people living here. So 10,000 new homes being built per million people in the 70s. That number is now around five to 6,000 new homes being built per million people. So, we, so you can clearly see the rate of construction relative to our population size has declined over the years. And in some cases, actually, the absolute number of units being built has also declined in, in, since the 70s. That has meant that the, as the demand continues to increase and we're not building enough homes, we effectively have created a situation where more households and families are searching to buy or rent and fewer dwellings are available. So unless we change this equation in a fundamental way, nothing would change. You know, you can interview me five or 10 years later and the story will still be the same. <laughs> Just thinking about this, and this is a question that I'm not certain anyone has the answer, but I'm just curious to hear your take on it. Like, if there's a market for housing, why has the supply been curtailed right across the country like that? Like, how have we backed ourselves into this corner if, if you know, there's demand for housing and the need for housing over the course of decades? It seems just seems crazy to me. Yes. I, well, let's look at it in a competitive way. Let's look at the United States. Let's look at Canada. Our land mass is almost the same, very similar, right? So in the U.S., for, compared to an average American, an average Canadian has 10 times more land per capita than an average American, right? So that's just because we are one-tenth in demographic size uh, of the U.S., so that means that we have 10 times more land per person than in the U.S. Now, obviously, our uh, climate and our topography is such that not all of that land is developable, right? Like, we don't have Florida-like places or Arizona-like places. We, You know, we've got snow and we've got lots of it. So that's the reason why most Canadians live within plus minus about 50 to 100 kilometers of the American border is where you can find most Canadians. So that is also true. But even if you were to look at land that is developable, right, land that is located in inhospitable areas, there we have created artificial shortage of land. Now, that artificial shortage of land, some of it is for very good reasons. For example, we may have environmentally sensitive land, which is called the Green Belt and often refers to the areas around the urban areas that are either unspoiled green land or agricultural land. And I think there should absolutely be no compromise uh, in protecting those lands. This, this is 
very critical for the sustainability and local and larger sustainability challenges. So I'm not referring to that land, but the land that has already been built over, right? That's the brownfield development. Over there, we create numerous planning-related regulations that slows down or prohibits the development and, and therefore creates an artificial scarcity of land. For example, if you look at areas, let's say, not in downtown Toronto or near downtown Toronto, but in a farther remotely located municipality of Brampton. And in that municipality, if you create planning regulations that say, well, if you want to build here, you have to build at a minimum density of X, Y, or Z. Now, the builders say, well, you know what? If I were to build at that density, I have to build smaller units uh, with lesser, let's say, land per unit, which means that I would be trying to attract a different type of demographic, and that demographic may not be interested in coming to Brampton. If the demographic interest in buying smaller size units um, is, is the target, that demographic targets the central core or the central parts of the city, right? Like the small-sized households, one or two-person households with one child, often living near the city center in a smaller unit. But now you've got, you know, multi-generational household, grandparents, parents, and two children, and their housing needs are more, so they're looking for bigger homes. So they go out to the suburbs, and then you force developers to build smaller units where the demand for smaller units in the remote areas are not there. So what happens is a gridlock. The type of housing that is permissible is not the one that the demand for which the demand exists. So you have several of these examples or iterations of these mismatch between what the planning regulations allows and what the builders want to build or what the people want to do to to live in. And this these conflicting objectives means that the housing gets built at a very inadequate pace in Canada. We build about two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand homes in a given year. And relative to our population size, that number is short, is, is, is inadequate. And that's the reason why we have year after year pent-up demand of housing resulting from lack of development. Now, I learned today, just today, that there are uh, other challenges, right? Like even if the planning authorities make land available for development, you can run into other troubles where you may not have the labor to build. And in now with COVID-19 and disruptions to supply chains, you may not have enough materials to construct. Lumber was in short supply, continues to be in short supply. So we have now with COVID-19 increased challenges to build. It's not no longer a question of having the approvals, but it's more of a question of having the approvals, having the labor, having the trades and having the supplies to construct new housing. So Murtaza, then in your opinion, what needs to happen to bring more supply online? Is it simply just get out of the way? <laughs> yes, I think that not not like in that very simple way, but I think what has happened is like if you look at the discourse, people complain to the prime minister or oh, under prime minister Trudeau, this has happened. Or they say under premier Doug Ford, this has happened or whatever, whoever is the premier in British Columbia. They will actually associate the local provincial government or the feds uh, being the res- being responsible for eroding housing affordability and, and and the like, and they they walk right into it and admit that it's their responsibility. But the reality is, housing is a very local issue. It's your mayor, it's your councillor. Actually, people should go to the councillor, their local councillor, and say, "Hey, Mr. Councillor or Miss Councillor, you've been representing us for the last two or five years. How many homes did you allow to be built here? How many homes 
how much construction did you facilitate? And you realize that because of so much opposition to development at local level, in fact, most of the time, local authorities are busy opposing new construction. So that's where I think what needs to happen is to for the federal government and the provincial governments to realize that if at the local level we do not have a realization of urgency to build more housing, and in instances where even if there's no opposition, there's not enough support to to build a large number of housing, then the federal and provincial authorities may consider assuming some of the land development role and assuming some of the responsibilities for land use regulations to to jumpstart the construction of tens of thousands of units that we need in Canada. To give you an example, if there was a report from one of the Canadian banks that said that if, if we had the same rate of housing as it is in the European Union, so for example, for X number of people, they have Y number of homes. So if there was the same level of housing supply or housing stock, not supply, if it, there was the same level of housing stock per capita in Canada, as is the average of European Union, then we would need 1.8 million more homes in Canada today, not in the future, but today. And on the on the other side, if I argue that if we had to, if we were building at the same rate as we were in the 1970s, we would have built 5 million more homes. So you pick a number between 1.8 and 5 million more homes, and you realize that this is what you need today, because that's a shortfall today. And somehow that needs to be conveyed to local leadership because the local leadership at the councillor, at the city council, at the mayor levels, that doesn't get, uh, rec- that, that urgency doesn't get recognized. I mean, there are well-meaning people scattered all across the landscape. that They come up with uh, several initiatives. Uh, in British Columbia, you are very familiar with not the supply-inducing, but demand-curbing initiatives. Demand-curbing right. initiatives would be put us vacancy tax, put us uh, speculation tax, Put a foreign home buyers tax, and you you can pile up all these taxes if you want to. If you don't address the supply side issue, your housing will continue to be unaffordable. So you know, if there's anyone who could honestly say that because of those sales taxes and vacancy taxes, housing has become affordable in Vancouver or British Columbia, I need to know because what's a, what and that would be a surprise to me because housing would continue to be unaffordable irrespective of our efforts to curb the demand until such time that we bring a boost in supply. You know, yeah, and we've we've talked about the going after demand on this show quite a bit and, and the failure of it to have typically any impact on home prices. Moving on to maybe the most recent policy change, the end of blind bidding. Or potential change. Or potential change, I should say. Would an end to blind bidding help Canadian home buyers, in your opinion, Mirtaza? Yes, it will help in a way that they would be aware of what is happening, but it wouldn't make the housing necessarily affordable. Again, you know, if uh, the problem with blind bidding is that it leaves all the cards in the hands of the sellers and the buyers know not much about it. And with the end of two blind bidding, basically when you put the first bid in, that would be by default a blind bid, right? When you want to buy a house, you go and put a bid in, you don't know who else has bid, but uh, you make a make an honest assessment of your of of what you think the house is valued. Now, the problem that I see with blind bidding is not with the first bid, but with the subsequent negotiations and bidding. Because what happens is the seller's agent comes to you and says, "Well, you're in the top three or top five. Would you like to revise your bid?" At this point, you don't know where you stand 
in amongst those top five bidders. Maybe you're already at the top. Maybe you've already bid 200,000 above and beyond the second person who has the second highest bid. You don't know any of it. And out of fear of missing out, you may end up paying another $200,000 for that house. And, and then you would never know that you were already $200,000 above the, the second highest bid. And then you ended up being 400000 higher than the second highest bid. So that's the part of blind bidding that I think is not in the interest of buyers that does not keep a level playing field between buyers and sellers. Now, once you remove this, this would create, uh, it would help remove the information asymmetry between buyers and sellers, but it will not remove or address the imbalance between demand and supply. If it so happens that you can now know what others have bid and is there still scarcity of homes, you'll still bid higher than the rest and you will continue to bid up the price if you like the house because you know there's a shortage of supply and the available housing stock may not be sufficient to meet the demand. So in terms of balancing the or getting rid of the information asymmetries and creating some fairness in the system, I strongly support the elimination of blind bidding. But I don't also think that it's going to make housing affordable. Interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like for the most part, kind of operating in the market, you do see you you occasionally will see somebody go you know knock it out of the park and bid kind of fifty or a hundred or two hundred k over over the other offers, but it's it's interesting and I think some people wouldn't believe this, but for the most part, in my experience at least, the highest offers there's always a couple of stinkers if there's like six seven offers, but the top two or three are pretty comparable in a lot of ways. So. I think you're, yeah, it sounds... So So here's another thing. I mean, uh, I was speaking to the regulators in British Columbia and I, uh, on, and I encouraged them to collect information. What you just shared with me, if there was any data, anyone had it, not just the regulators, but the real estate authorities, even brokerage themselves, then we would be in a good position to say, you know what, right. these, these are very close bids. This is not the way people would assume. But the reality is no one is collecting that data. No one is storing that data. There's no requirement to... So even if you were to go to a brokerage and said in the last 50 homes or 500 homes you sold in the bidding process, what was the difference between the second highest and the highest bid? And they would have no clue because they're not collecting that data. So I think regulation or governance in the absence of information, it's a very scary thing to do. And that's where most people are. And I think I'm, what I was hoping is that British Columbia regulators could take the lead in setting up at least a data collection and archiving processes to for us to know, because many people are arguing blind bidding doesn't cause any damage. Okay, so then let's put the evidence out. Right. There was a very good report from Smart Prosperity Institute released on blind bidding, and they argued that it's not the problem. Your open bidding could be even a bigger problem. And then they collected information. The report was funded by CREA, Canadian Real Estate Association, and the report was based on data from America and England and other places. But what was missing was the basic information from Canadian marketplace, right? Like, so as a consumer, I would hope that someone would say, don't worry, this is not a problem. And here's the result of our own internal bookkeeping that mm. the, you know, the average difference between the second and the highest bid is $10,000, not $100,000 that you have been imagining. So I think to argue against the point that we don't even need to collect information uh, or data would be wrong. And also would be what would be wrong is to assume that you eliminate blind bidding and the housing market will become affordable. So both these points are not valid. What is needed is start with data collection 
see what is the extent of the challenge. And if the real estate industry believes it's not a problem, the data would bear it out and then we could all move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it strikes me as in with a lot of things in the housing market, it's a bit of a black box, right? The data collection is, or the lack of data collection is striking um, across our marketplace in my mind. But uh, moving forward, Murtaza, you know, we've been in a historically low interest rate environment. Uh, it looks like we're set for that to change in, in 2022. What's your take on where we're headed in terms of interest rates and what do you think that does to the Canadian housing market, I guess, especially in light of the, the fact of the 50 years of underbuilding? Well, you know, if I were to be able to predict interest rates, I would be given giving this interview from my big boat somewhere in the Mediterranean. <laughs> so given that I don't have that kind of expertise and, and all the people that I've interacted in the last 30 years, no one did. Even the guy who wrote the book, How to Forecast Interest Rates, is still living in an apartment. So, uh, <laughs> so, so there are a couple of things. I mean, going from very basics, and this is not me speaking as it as I, this is me speaking as an engineering professor who you know who's trained as an engineer. I always go with first principles, and the first principles are: Are commodity prices rising? Is there a pressure on wages? You could see that the consumer price index has ticked up a lot, especially in the U.S. It's difficult to determine whether these prices are increasing as a result of a disruption to supply chains, global supply chains, or is it as a result of higher demand facilitated by quantitative easing that went on over the last 18 months that, you know, governments put money into the systems, gave people assistance, which allowed, which helped create demand for goods and that's why the prices would rise or is the pri are the prices like lumber are rising just because of disruption to supply chains so there is this sort of disconnect and it's not very easy for us to know where the price pressures are coming from but if you look around and you realize that you didn't get a pay increase i didn't get a pay increase and no one i know got a big huge pay increase which means that the wage pressures are not increasing so there probably would be would be a moderate increase in the interest rates, because the basically the the central bank uses interest rates to to control the market, prevent the markets from heating up too much. So an indicator of that is you know too much hiring, too much wage pressure, and whatnot. So so there may be moderate increase in base rate, and that would result in some increase in mortgage rates. But as long as mortgage rates are under five percent or four percent. I don't think they would make a humongous dent in, in the demand for housing. There was a time in the 90s when mortgage rates were 15, 17, 18% or more. People, you know, if you talk to people who had homes in the 80s, they'll tell you in the early 80s and in the early 90s, mortgage rates were way higher than what we see now. And I saw someone advertising a mortgage rate of 0.99%. So if the mortgage rates are around 2%, they go to 3% or they go to 4%. Would I expect a humongous decline in demand? No. Would I expect a, a moderate moderation of the increase in housing prices? Yes. I would expect the housing prices to grow at a slower rate, but still grow rather than decline. Murtaza, are you any better at predicting inflation? Because or, or that, <laughs> that's, that's, that's <laughs> another. It sounds, like, it sounds like you don't think, though, you don't sound as... as uh, scared about inflation as, as some people we've talked to. As some of the headlines, at least. Yeah. 
Well, I, I you know, inflation is should I, I again, I'm not an economist. You should always ask this question to an economist. I just look at wages. I think wages are much better indicators of if the market is heating or not. See, before COVID, prices, consumer product, consumer price index could be a good proxy for what's going on. But right now, you know, with borders closed and supply chains disrupted and you put the, the Vancouver port in underwater or, or not at the port, but there's significant flooding around it. So disruptions happen. You've got lots of ships anchored up the, uh, at the inlet because they can't, it can't come up. Why? Because the, the rail lines are underwater, right? The ships unload, then the products goes on rail, then rails ship this to the rest of Canada, but you've got flooding. So now you put all this together and the demand for whatever was being shipped from Vancouver to Ontario, that demand is there, but the product isn't. So the supply is constrained, demand remains the same, product prices goes up. So in those scenarios, I don't know if we can use consumer price indices or price of particular products to judge if the market is heating up or not. But I, I, you know, wages are a good way of looking at it. Once, once you see wage pressures increasing, the government would act. At the same time, the central banks are interesting. You know, they, they are reluctant to raise the interest rates so high that it kills the possibility of a recovery or an ongoing recovery. So even if the wage pressures or pressures are high, they still are on the side of caution, is that they don't want to be responsible for saying, well, there was a recovery going on until such time that you raised the interest rates. So I don't know. I mean, you know, I, sometimes I feel all these decisions are made on the back of a flip of a coin, um, but who knows? I mean, they all come out and appear to be, you know, that we have deliberated. Meanwhile, they all probably were doing coin flips. <laughs> 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 that makes me feel better <laughs> about a lot of the decisions I've made, at least. <laughs> you know, maybe, and we always take you off the hot seat in terms of predictions for a minute, but I was just curious, you know, when you talk at the start about the intersection of your, your research on, you know, development and transportation, and then we spoke a little bit about the commercial real estate market, and it sounds like at least your take on on office and and retail is still not super optimistic about the future. Do you care to comment on on the future of cities and kind of where we're at in terms of hopefully coming out of, of the other end of COVID and, and what this looks like? Yeah, I mean, today I was in a seminar with some very senior planners and I mentioned the same thing. I said, you know, don't try to protect your employment lands as much as you've done in the past because COVID probably have changed the equation for demand for employment land. So they said, no, 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 man is a social animal. We'll be back and downtowns will recover. And I agree. But they forget one thing, that this quote, man is a social animal, I think comes from Aristotle, who was living in a city of, what, 500 or 5,000? Aristotle didn't say man is a social animal and man should be living in a city of 5 million people with high densities of 10, 15, 20,000 persons per square kilometer. If you get Aristotle alive today and say, where do you want to live? He probably will pick a very remote suburb saying, you guys are too crowded out there, right? <laughs> so, so, so yeah, man is a social animal, but man is a social animal to be able to see your neighbor in distance, right? Not your neighbor right next to you with the sharing a wall in a semi-detached or a townhouse. So, so you realize that these, these notions could be good for storytelling, but, but in reality, they conflict with the, with the fundamental desires or behavioral desires or underpinnings of human beings. So the way I see it, I already see this phenomena of uh, working from home two days a week, right? 
you see a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, my employer has decided that we're going to work two days a week from home, three days a week from the office. And then, you know, the real, those who own a lot of real estate portfolios, they say, oh, yeah, look, this is cities are coming back. Even if that is true, you know, you're working two days out of five from home, that's a 40% decline in the demand for office real estate. Yes, you have the full real estate, but you're you effectively, if you look at how many people would be, you are staggering the workforce and your workforce is essentially working from two days from home. Two out of five is 40%. So I think we have to be prepared for a future where the demand for office real estate and then subsequently retail and whatnot would be 40% less than it was pre-COVID. And probably that's where the new norm would be. Return to the cities, yes, but the demand will be anywhere, I would guess, 20 to 40% less than the pre-COVID levels. Maybe as a, a final question, Murtaza, last time we had you on was May of 2020, and we were actually speaking about CMHC's prediction in the market of the decline of the of 18%. We're again at a kind of a moment here where there's lots of uh, lots of headwinds and people, you know, kind of trying to predict what's going to happen in 2022 in the market. What are your thoughts on 2022 and moving forward? Yeah, I know. I'm glad that you reminded me of the CMHC prediction, uh, 18% decline. So you know what happened to that prediction? That you, you you thought I was reluctant to <laughs> offer a prediction. I mean, I'm always reminded myself, anybody asked me to predict anything, that 18% decline comes to my mind because that never <laughs> happened. Right? So imagine you're you know, you the CEO or head of CMHC and you go to Hamilton near on Toronto and you say, well, you know, we predicted the prices would be down by 18%. And they, they said prices have been up 40%. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, how did that happen? How do you explain that? Yeah. Um, again, you know, remember George Box was a very famous statistician, a British statistician. He actually was, I think he married the granddaughter of uh, Fisher. Fisher was the godfather of statistics as we know it. But George Box had significant contribution to the art of forecasting and the science of forecasting. And one of his famous quotes is that all models models, you translate it into forecasts. All forecasts are wrong. Some are useful, right? So by default, we have to embrace the fact that forecasts are wrong. As I said, if forecasts were correct, we would be billionaires, people who can make correct forecasts. No, but the reality is forecasts are wrong. They're just, they inform the decision-making. They are one more input into our decision-making. So looking at 2022, I don't think, no one knows, no one thinks that we will address the supply issues in one year. That would take probably two or three decades. So I would expect housing prices to continue to rise, short of a crisis, major crisis, right? If if we if there is an economic recovery, the way everybody's expecting, if we are going back to work the way I've been instructed by my university to go and teach in person in January, I'm expecting a more of a, a recovery um, now and more so at a higher pace and a rapid pace in January going forward. All of this means that the demand for housing will increase even more. So there you have it, folks. Uh, <laughs> I, that sounds like at the very least business as usual, but uh, continued pressure, demand pressure on the market, at least in Toronto and Vancouver. And it sounds like you're you're pretty bullish on Canadian real estate generally. I'm bullish, but I'm also concerned. Like you see, this conversation has to be mindful of the fact that there's a significant and, and a large number of Canadian households who struggle to pay the minimum rent, right. uh, market rent. These are the people who have been priced out. 
they are, you know, your the gig economy workers. They never get enough hours to get gainful employment, and they are doing two, three, four jobs just to keep their households afloat. And they are the ones, actually, the real, uh, the cohort, the real demographic that needs help. They're not even in the in the race for buying a house. You know, when we talk about about housing affordability, we're only talking about people who wanted to buy homes that they couldn't buy, so they'll end up buying a house that may not be their ideal home in their ideal location. But the focus should be on Canadians who struggle to pay the minimum market rent. And it's their welfare that we should be focused upon because they do the jobs that are necessary for the society and economy to function. It's not that we can work without them or we can have these great cities function without people who are working in the restaurant industry, in the tourism industry, people who are taking care of security. All of these people, in the case of Vancouver, school teachers, police fire people who who the society and the economy relies on if they can't pay the market rent we have a problem and of course as you mentioned earlier the focus should be uh, or the pressure should be on local municipalities in many cases absolutely i mean you know if i see problems i would go to my local councillor and say at the average household income um, x number of our population cannot afford to rent a house here what are you doing about it and and then force them to to facilitate more construction. It's The relief will come through more construction. Um, this supply skepticism in Canada, where many believe that it doesn't matter you build or not build, nothing will change. That has to be addressed in a more aggressive fashion because that's a very flawed way of looking at it. And then blaming others. You know, sometimes you play foreigners, sometimes Martians, somebody else. The speculators are ruining it for us. Not realizing that you know most of it is happening here. The demand is 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 originated here. What we have to do is to address the short the the, the inadequate supply that we have not addressed in the last 40, 50 years. Absolutely. Right, and it se- it seems like blind bidding. You know, whereas transparency, I think, is is a is a positive for sure. It does in some ways feel like it's you know one more you know, fairly quick fix for a problem that has been building up over the last 50 years, at least the way I see it. Absolutely. I mean, you look at people who have bid multiple times, and I, I know people now who have been outbid 30 times, and, and imagine their frustration. All they're trying to do is buy a house, but every time they make an offer, somebody else outbids them. That's a serious limitation. That's a serious concern, and I think we should we should help. We should encourage the federal government in doing something about it. They promised it. I, I'm, what I'm not in favor of, I must be very honest about it, I'm not in favor of criminalizing anything right now because the feds do not control the business of real estate. It's a provincial matter. All real estate regulations are provincial. The, the buying and selling of real estate, it's controlled by provincial laws. So what I'm strongly advocating is that the feds use their leverage to bring the provinces and the regulators together to say, let's collect information for the sake of Canadians to see if blind bidding is really a cause of price hikes, if it's really a cause of anxiety. I mean, people, the sanity of buyers should be as big of a concern as the sanity of sellers. You cannot have an industry that stakes the interests of sellers at heart and buyers uh, ignored and ignored the buyers. But, you know, it's very interesting. What, What surprises me that if you are a buyer of a real estate, you're also most of the time a seller as well. So what means is that if you're looking after the interests of sellers, you sell your house, 
and then blind bidding favors you. Now you're back in the market trying to buy a house and now blind bidding hurts you. Right. So the, basically the industry's job is to look after the interests of buyers and sellers alike. You can't pick favorites. Well, yeah. And, and the irony, I guess, is what the challenge that we're coming across right now is part of the inventory problem is because people don't want to sell until they know that they can buy, but they know how challenging the buy process is going to be. Oh, yeah. It's really a challenge. It's, it's, uh, it's, the more you think about it, the more uh, you get kind of lost in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you sell, where are you going to go? Exactly. I mean, most people, you, you hear people, you say, you know, the house I live in, if I have to buy today, buy the house today, I wouldn't be able to afford it. So that's the reality for most people. Yeah. Murtaza, how can people find out more about what you're up to and, and where can they go to, to, to read more of your writing? So we write a weekly column for Financial Post, National Post, and occasionally our writings show up in Vancouver Sun, Calgary Herald, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette. So you can read us up in newspapers owned by Post Media. You can also read up uh, on our research on urbananalyticsinstitute.com, which is our research institute at Ryerson University. And um, we are also... If you were to Google us, you will see our reports. We just worked with McDonald Laurier Institute, and they published a research paper from us on housing challenges. It just came out last week, and um, you can read up on it. It was covered, actually. Surprisingly, we saw a tweet by the leader of the opposition today uh, highlighting that study. So we are very pleased. I mean, we had never made this far up the value chain. So they, <laughs> <laughs> so they were highlighting our study, which is, you know, we are very grateful for, for their kind attention. But essentially, our goal is to be out there and advocate for the welfare, improving the welfare of Canadians as it relates to housing, through research and through through analytics. And then, and, and yeah, so we, we do write a lot and we try to publish work through news media and also through academic papers and reports, helping Canadians get to the bottom of it. Sounds good. Well, well, thanks again for your time, Murtaza, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to have you back on uh, in the future for your fifth time. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. It's always interesting. There's so many takeaways always. Yeah, appreciate it, Murtaza. And uh, yeah, have a great uh, rest of your day. Thank you kindly. Take care. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Professor Murtaza Haider. Yes, really enjoyed that conversation with Murtaza Haider. Again, professor at Ryerson, director of Regionomics Incorporated, columnist at the Financial Post. He also writes for the National Post. You know what? I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. He's what out did there. I say? Did I say Financial Post? He, no, sorry, he, Financial no. Post and, and the Globe and Mail, right, I should say. Right, yeah. yeah. Although I think the Financial Post is owned by the National Post. Well, let's not muddle the money the waters here. <laughs> Regardless, great conversation with Martaza. So many takeaways. I, I love his perspective. He's, he's just such a smart guy and uh, has so many insightful things to say about the market. Well, here it is. We often talk about on this show how hard it is to monitor markets just in the region, you know, in, in the lower mainland. Because, you know, it is. It's it's skins of the onion, right? There's a lot of moving parts and different sub-markets. And really what Murtaza does really well is he's got a great handle on, like, right across the country. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's always useful having a conversation with someone like Murtaza. Well, and also the supply numbers going back 50 years. Like, I I love that. That's the kind of deep data dives that are are so useful. So no, great having Murtaz on the show. What else uh, do we have, Adam, before we, uh, we cut for the day? And just for anyone who's not obsessed with succession, 
you are my onion was a yeah was yeah, a that's a succession yeah. yeah yeah I'm not actually an onion here here and you're not actually yeah. my onion. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about first of all the numbers are up for listeners on our show right um, lots of new listeners appreciate everybody who's been listening who has been reaching out. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share the podcast with a friend, that is how we grow. We do very little to grow this other than put out what we think is is really solid content every single week. So if you are talking to people and they are interested in real estate, share our show and we really appreciate it. We'd love to grow this thing. It is the end of the year. We're looking into 2022. We've got some big goals for the podcast here in and, 2022. And big guests lined up for And some fantastic guests already lined up for January. So we're super excited about that. Matt, also the website, what can people find at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com? This is our website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, where you'll find not only our back catalog for the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, we also have the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast that lives there. Corey Wright's baby. And there's been, there's so much positive feedback recently uh, you know, for the it's, commercial it's po- funny. podcast. It's, it's amazing. It's a slow burn always when you start a new show, but the amount of people that have reached out to me who are now starting to get obsessed with commercial real estate where it wasn't even really on their radar before. Exactly. Listening and people in the US, people all over. I've just, I've just heard uh, fantastic things about that show. You know, they're doing great things over there. I think uh, really we've got a fantastic guest coming this upcoming week. I won't spoil it, but someone who's made one of the biggest purchases in uh, Vancouver's uh, commercial history, I believe. So it's an exciting episode. No kidding. So that's at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. What else do we have at the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast? We have the Livewire. This is our weekly mailer. There's no reason why you don't want to be on this list. We got listings, exclusive listings, pre-sale VIPs for both commercial and residential episodes, stats before anyone else, stats that you're not going to find anywhere else. I mean, it's it's just a treasure trove of information week in and week out. Yes. We also have private client services. I, I refer to it as a treasure trail, but a treasure <laughs> trove, <laughs> I'll take that as well. Yeah, Matt, PCS, why stand still while the rest of us are power walking by? You get sold prices, days on market. You get realtor level information for free available at your fingertips. This is the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver that's out there. We've tried them all. Check out PCS. You can do that. Sign up for your free account at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And uh, as a final note, some listeners have been reaching out recently right. for early spring listings. So the conversations are beginning. If you're thinking of listing early spring, definitely don't hesitate to get in touch. And it's understandable if you want to wait till after after the holiday season. Right. But uh, now's as good a time as ever. The inventory's down and uh, it's a it's a great time to start thinking about 2022 goals. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And if somebody wants to reach out and discuss their goals with you, how can they find you? 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Kokomo goals 2022, I tell you. <sighs> How good is that? And every, everyone I know is in Hawaii right now. Is that, is that right? like, yeah, it's just Instagram is just all, I can't oh, even, can't even see, look yeah, at it. I, yeah. You just got to get it off your I'm phone. I'm not looking at it. So there yeah. you go. Anyways, take care guys. On that <laughs> Enjoy. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 